Let's give attention now to the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Then, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 6 of Mark chapter 13. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as you have given to us the privilege of having each one our own copy of your word, the privilege of being able to open it and read it, and now, Lord, the privilege of hearing it read publicly, hearing it proclaimed in your church, may we value this, O Lord, to the degree that we lay aside our other cares and concerns, that we attend carefully to the preaching of your word, that we receive it into our hearts, that we digest it through meditation and prayer, that we ask your blessing upon it so that it would work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. O Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may it strengthen our faith, may it increase our worship and our service. May Christ be glorified from and through this portion of his word. In his name we pray. (coughs) Amen. Mark chapter 13 is one of the longest sections of teaching in the gospel of Mark. In fact, it is the longest. You might remember from before, from previous studies in our series, that Mark chapter 4, which contains a collection of parables, is the second longest portion of teaching. And of course, you may remember that there are other places where Mark teaches at some length, or where Mark presents the Lord Jesus teaching at some length, but this is the longest uninterrupted discourse of the Lord Jesus in the gospel. And you might also remember that Mark does this on purpose. We've been looking at conflict in the temple. We've entered into the last week of Jesus' earthly life, and things are happening pretty quickly. But now here, we sort of pause There's a long break from more things happening as the Lord Jesus gives extended instruction. Now, Mark chapter 13 has sometimes been called the little apocalypse, and it's parallel to Matthew 24 to Luke chapter 21. There's an extended discourse in all three of the synoptic gospels where the Lord Jesus talks about what will happen, about what is coming. And on the one hand, of course, that always gets people's interest. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen next. We would all like a sneak peek into the future. That's one reason why newspapers continue to publish horoscopes, even though it's generally the latest hire at the newspaper who's responsible for writing them. People with no particular insight into the future. But there's such an itch for that. That's why people will still pay attention to the prophecies of Nostradamus, and even people who are not particularly interested in the teaching of the Bible in other ways will prick up their ears and listen when you say, well, this is what the Bible says 
about the end times or about what will happen next. Or this is what the Bible says about what Russia is going to do sometime soon. There is a very strong interest in what will happen next, and that interest was shared by the disciples, or at least by these four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, whom Mark specifically identifies. Now, along with that, of course, you also get strong differences of opinion. There's a number of different approaches to the predictions in Scripture, whether those are found in the Old Testament, whether those are found in the New Testament, in the Gospels or in the Epistles, or of course, especially in the book of Revelation. And as we go through this, of course, I expect to talk about those things a little bit, but there are several things that I don't want to do. I do not want to just tickle itching ears. The Bible is written for our edification, for our profit, and detailed charts showing you exactly what's going to happen next. I don't think that's mostly for your edification or for my edification. So if you want to know the inside scoop, my approach to prophecy is largely idealistic, amillennial, and if you have questions about that, you can bring them up afterwards. Um, In terms of what we expect to see happen, I do believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will be victorious, but I think we need to be very careful not to impose our categories of victory onto what the Bible teaches. I had one friend, he thought that embracing a biblical culture would have a strong tendency to make us all taller. Over time, of course, not right away, but over generations, if we really believed and practiced the Bible, we would all get taller. I think that's kind of a bizarre definition of victory. And when I pointed out to him that Goliath was taller than anybody in Israel, he didn't really have a good comeback for that one. So I want to be circumspect in that. And so there are two guiding principles that really are going to hopefully be foundational for our consideration of Mark chapter 13 or whenever we come to the book of Zechariah or the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation or any of those other portions of God's word that relate primarily to a future, we are going to try to approach it with those big principles in mind of edification, of what do we need to know about God in order to live as we should. Because the Bible was not given to satisfy our curiosity. The Bible was given so that we would live righteous and sober and godly lives in this present evil generation. And with regard to Mark 13, I can even narrow that down a little bit more and tell you these are my guiding principles for interpreting Mark chapter 13. Number one, Christ is telling us what to do, not just what to expect. If you analyze this chapter, you will realize that again and again, it comes to a transition point. It concludes a little section with a command, with an imperative, a verb in the imperative mood that tells us what to do. The disciples ask, what are the signs? What's going to happen? And Jesus answers, but as he answers, he bakes in a number of commands. This is what you need to do. So Mark chapter 13 shouldn't be speculative. It should be practical for us. Now, my other guiding principle is that Mark tells us, he relates to us this teaching of Jesus so that we will see who Jesus is. 
And of course, you sort of have that expressed in the book of Revelation when you're told that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What's the heart and soul of prophecy? What's the goal of it? What's the point? The point is to show us the Lord Jesus and anything that distracts us from the Lord Jesus is to one degree or another a slight step away from the true spirit of prophecy. I say all of that by way of introduction so that everybody isn't sitting here thinking through the whole sermon and trying to guess. Now, what position does Reuben take on these matters? I want everybody to be listening, but I want everybody to be listening for edification and for profit and not just for curiosity or not just to pin me down and challenge me with your favorite question afterwards. Although you're more than welcome to bring up questions to me afterwards. I never mind receiving and trying to answer questions. So we're focusing on verses 1 through 6 this morning, and the reason I'm doing that is because we do have that command in verse 6. And according to my understanding of the chapter, we need to concentrate, we need to always stop with a command to take it on board and to apply that to ourselves. Now, you remember what's happened before. The Lord Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been interacting. He's been answering questions and objections. He's been defeating people who were trying to trip him up. And now he's leaving. He's leaving the temple for the last time. He was never going to be back in there. And his disciples, Galilean tourists who didn't live in Jerusalem, who didn't get used to the sight of this artificial mountain of white marble gleaming with gold highlights, said, look at these amazing buildings. We're told that the stones were of almost incredible proportions. In fact, the temple had expanded so much they'd had to build a giant retaining wall to create a flat platform for the temple. And if you go to Jerusalem and you see the famous Western Wall, those stones were not part of the temple itself. They were part of the retaining wall that held up the platform because the mountaintop wasn't big enough. They had to extend it with this retaining wall and this terrace so that the the temple would fit. This was a magnificent sight. It was dazzling. It was amazing. And it wasn't unreasonable for the disciples to be impressed Good architecture is impressive. And when you remembered all the sacred associations, whether it's with David, whether it's with Solomon, whether it's with the glory of God filling the original temple building, whether it's with the restoration of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, whether it's the purification of the temple under the Maccabees. I mean, there's a lot of important history baked in there. And for people who loved the Lord, for people who valued the temple worship because it was the place God had chosen to meet with his people, you can understand where going to Jerusalem and entering the temple, the temple precincts would be an amazing experience. And the magnificence of the building just contributed to that, just supported that. But Jesus replied to that didn't really seem to place too much importance on the temple, did it? Because he said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Historically, of course, that was the case when Titus conquered Jerusalem. They set fire to the temple and then they overthrew it. Now, they didn't knock down all the stones in the retaining wall, but they did knock down all the stones from the temple building itself. So Jesus makes this prediction, but he's headed out. And he doesn't follow up on it. He just says that and keeps moving. 
You can imagine that the disciples were kind of scratching their heads and wondering and thinking, well, how can this be? There's one more principle that I want to hold out to you about Mark 13 and all of this sort of passage. Why are there so many differences of opinion about what's going to happen? And I'm, I'm saying this now because we're about to get to it, because they're about to come and they're going to say, what did you mean by that? How's, how are we going to know that this is going to happen? So before we look at the specifics of that, there are three things that are included in this prediction. Because there's the actual temple building itself. There's the real meaning of the temple, which is embodied in the Lord Jesus. And then there's the reality that the destruction of the old order, the visible end of the old order in the destruction of the temple, the real end of the old order with the crucifixion of Christ, both anticipated the ultimate end, the end of the world or the end of the age. One reason I think there's so many differences of opinion is that some people posit a false dichotomy. They say, well, it's one or the other, and they don't see that the one is a type of the other. But even when people see that, I think sometimes there's differences of opinion because they don't see how it centers in Christ. They don't see how the initial fulfillment of this prediction was, in fact, pertaining to Christ's crucifixion that was coming up very, very shortly. Okay, so with that by way of second introduction, now we get to the disciples coming. This is the only time in the gospel that Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus something privately, that usually when Jesus is separated from some of the disciples, there's only three, Peter and James and John. On this occasion, Andrew is there as well, and they want to know privately what he meant by that. What is going on with that? What are the signs? And I want you to notice carefully what it says. When will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, what has he talked about? He's talked about the destruction of the temple. They may be importing other ideas. They might have had other associations for what would happen when the temple was destroyed. But the way Mark tells it, the only thing that they really spelled out was the destruction of the temple. And Mark's answer largely focuses on that. But I would say that Mark's answer, or the answer that Jesus gives in Mark, is largely focused on the destruction of the temple as a byproduct, as a consequence of his own crucifixion, and as an anticipation of something still to come. So they say... When will these things be? What's the sign that all will be fulfilled? They want to know when. What do we expect this? How will we know it's happening? And Jesus will go on to answer that. He'll go on to answer that by saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, and then. So he gives them some things that don't give them a lot of clear information so they won't be misled. And then he does give them the actual sign. But all of that falls outside of the boundaries of our text for today. Because today we stop with verse 6. And we stop with verse 6 because this was the first lesson that the Lord Jesus wanted to get across to them. He said, take heed. Watch out. Look is the word. Because what is the danger? The danger is of being deceived. 
And, you know, maybe some people are already sitting here questioning my choices about how to preach this passage or what I've said so far. This is why. This is why I'm trying to be slow and cautious and methodical and circumspect. This is why I'm telling you my principles of interpretation. This is why we're walking through this slowly. There is a high danger of being deceived. The disciples ask the question, when? And the first thing Jesus says is, watch out, take heed, and don't be deceived. There's a lot of risk of going astray. And people can go astray in more than one way. People can go astray by misinterpreting and just getting the whole wrong message. They can misinterpret by thinking they have it all figured out. They can go astray by date setting. Some of you will remember the late Harold Camping, who famously predicted the return of Christ. Turned out he was wrong, went back, said he'd made a minor mathematical mistake, predicted the return of Christ again, conveniently died, and then his second prediction date also went by. Nothing happened. Christ did not come back when Harold Camping said he would. That's one way to go off track. And anybody who tells you, I can tell you when Christ will come back, they're full of it. They don't know what they're talking about. Don't be deceived. So there's that sort of approach where you just get the wrong idea. But then there's also a different way to go astray, which is maybe more subtle. But because it's more subtle, it's even more dangerous. And that's the way of sensationalizing what the Bible says, of making us live on edge and in a state of high anxiety, constantly reading the newspaper or watching the news for signs that Antichrist is about to be revealed here or there or somewhere, or that Christ is about to return. You might remember another famous book, which clearly did not get fulfilled, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. There's a marketing gimmick for you. If we sensationalize even if our interpretations are not as out there as 1988, if we sensationalize, we're still going astray because what does Christ call upon us? He calls upon us to look out. And in the Bible, the pair of watch and be sober, be serious, are often united. With regard to everything pertaining to prophecies about the future, we need to be on our guard not to be deceived. We need to make sure we remain watchful, and sober. Sensationalism is a real danger to the Christian life. We can be directed away from God's word. We can be directed away from focusing on what actually matters by trying to figure out niggling details. But you remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples right before his ascension. He said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has kept in his own power. It's not for you to know. So how are we supposed to approach this whole question? Well, we're supposed to approach it knowing the ultimate outcome. We're supposed to approach it knowing who is in charge. And we're supposed to approach it knowing what we are to do in days of crisis. Does it matter if it's the ultimate crisis or the penultimate crisis or the antepenultimate crisis? I don't think that part matters so much as knowing what to do now. So that's why I'm taking this approach, because this is what the Lord Jesus emphasizes at the very beginning of this discourse. Watch out! Do not be deceived. Now, this might remind you of what had come not long before in 
the Gospel of Mark. He had told them to beware of the scribes. There is a danger of false teaching. And there is a danger of false teaching where people come in the name of Christ claiming. Now, it just says claiming I am. So you can notice in the New King James, the way they interpreted that is there are other people claiming to be Christ. Now, sometimes that's very open and very visible. You can think of the Reverend Sun Myung Moon and his cult of the Moonies, where they do think of him as the Savior. You can think of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard trying to put us in a condition where we can save ourselves or others like that. There's many false messiahs. There's many who say they have the answers to this and that. But it doesn't have to be that blatant. It can be somebody coming in the name of Christ, saying things that sound good about Jesus, but denying the true doctrine in one way or another, whether it's the true doctrine of Christ or of God or of salvation or something like that. Many come in the name of Christ, claiming to be his representatives, and yet saying things that are not true. And now notice the end of verse 6. He says, will deceive many. Now, this is sometimes a point that is discouraging to believers, and this is sometimes a point that unbelievers, critics of the church, use to whack us over the head with. They say, well, if the truth is so amazing, if the Bible is so clear, if God has revealed himself, how come there's so many differences of opinion? You know, how are we supposed to choose between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Protestant and Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and et cetera, et cetera? And I, please understand, I'm not lumping all these groups together. I'm channeling what people who are not religious at all sometimes say. I understand that there's big differences between those groups. But not everybody does. They lump them all together. They, well, you all talk about Jesus, so what's the difference? Why can't you all just get along? Well, here's one reason why many false teachers come in Christ's name and they do deceive many. Now, if we remembered that, if we took that on board, then when we looked around at the blooming, buzzing confusion of people claiming the name of Christ and yet having beliefs that are almost opposites of one another, we wouldn't be surprised. We wouldn't be rattled. We would expect that. Christ told us that it would happen. In the book of Acts, we find out that there were several who came to the Jews. There was one Theudas. There was a certain Egyptian. There were others who stirred up revolts against the Romans, claiming that they were God's chosen deliverer. And something along those lines has continued to happen. In the early church, you had Montanus and his cult. In the Middle Ages, you had some very strange Groups that came up, you have the Russellites nearer to our own time. This prediction has been verified again and again and again. And that's why we need to be on guard. Now, I hope we're internalizing that command. I hope that we're taking it to heart and we're saying, okay, then we need to read the Bible. We need to compare what we hear about the future or about any other subject with what the Bible says. We need to stay close to the word of God. If something is confusing us, if something is drawing us away, we need to stop listening. We need to cut it out. We need to stay focused on the word and what the word says is central. We need to obey 
this command. Watch out and do not be deceived. We need not to be arrogant and think, well, other people might be deceived, but I'm too smart, I'm too wise, I'm too clever. Pride goes before a fall, doesn't it? A haughty spirit goes before destruction. We need to be careful about that. And so we need to stick close to the word of God and we need to be very sober in our interpretations. But that being said, I don't want to just end on that note. So I wonder if you noticed this little detail. Where was the Lord Jesus sitting when Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him this question? He was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. He's there, and and from the Mount of Olives, you could have gotten a very good, very nice, clear view of the Temple Mount. But Mark goes out of his way to highlight that, and Mark goes out of his way to highlight opposite the temple. There's two reasons for that. One is, of course, the question of the disciples pertains to the temple. The temple is in view. They're all thinking about it. They all know what the reference is. It's to the temple. But there's another reason for this, and it's from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple, and the glory of God stopped on the Mount of Olives, and it lingered there temporarily. But then the glory moved away, and that temple, the temple that Solomon had built, was destroyed. In a sense, you could say the Lord Jesus is reenacting that. He is the true glory of God. He was the meaning of the temple. And the custodians, the guardians of the temple are going to crucify him. They're going to destroy the true temple of God. But in three days, he's going to rise from the dead. You can see that in the Gospel of John. But when they destroy the real temple, the external temple, the symbolic temple loses its meaning. That's why the veil of the temple is going to be torn in two. And that's why the building itself is going to be destroyed within a generation. The glory has already departed. And so what is Mark doing here? Well, he's communicating to us all Jesus' warning, don't be deceived. But at the same time, he's showing us don't be deceived by anybody who pretends or tries to substitute for Christ, by anybody who hangs on to the old order instead of clinging to Christ, by anybody who proposes a substitute for Christ. He is the true glory of God. He is where God and man meet. He left the temple and there was no more value in it because all the meaning, all the reality, all of God being with us that was represented by the temple now came to expression and fulfillment and ultimate reality in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we avoid being deceived? We cling to Christ. We know who he is. And because we know who he is, we hear his word with so much care, with so much reverence, with so much sobriety that we cannot be moved away from it? Would you avoid errors of doctrine? Would you avoid being misled? Hold to Christ. Paul says that in the book of Colossians, doesn't he? Where were the errors coming from that were being promoted in Colossae? They came from not holding the head, not holding to Christ, the head of the church, the head of the body. That's the fruitful source of error. Would you be kept back from error? Cling to Christ and hear his 
word. Amen.